Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Boots and Whiskey podcast. As always, my name is Jim. I am your host. We have a very special, special interview for you this evening. We have the great Monty Byram on tonight. Monty, this is his second time being on the show. The first time you didn't hear because we had some issues recording. Um, But we might actually release that sometime in the future. um, Just so you can kind of hear different stories than now. Or maybe we'll put it out as a... um, pay-to-listen kind of service as we get going um, some more. Uh, Monty Byram is of big house fame in the late 90s, early 2000s, big country act back then. Um, he was in Billy Satellite, The New Frontier. He was in Eddie Money's band. He wrote some hits for Eddie, Eddie Money. Um, the list goes on and on and on. We're going to talk all about it in the next hour and 10 minutes. I know it's a little long, but trust me, it is worth it. You won't even realize how fast the time goes with this interview because, damn, um, I couldn't even believe how quickly the hour and 10 minutes went by. So, Monty, thank you so much for joining us. For everybody else, um, these episodes and these interviews are not edited in any way. Um, because I want you to hear the raw emotion and the stories as they're being told to me at the time of the interview. So as a little disclaimer, so nobody gets all offended and whatever PC on me, um, Monty does tell a story during this episode and and, um, drops a word in there that not everybody likes. Actually, most I don't think anybody likes, but the context is what's important is it's a story it's a historical you know fact it's a it's history being told to you so forget about the language enjoy the story because it's worth it trust me if i thought it was going to be a problem i would have edited it out maybe but i don't hold anything against anybody this story when you hear it is great. So just sit back, relax, enjoy. Monty, thank you so much for being on again. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Monty Byram. Hey, Monty. Hey, Jim. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. Long time no see or talk, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, half of California's burnt down since I talked to you last. Well, you know... It's crazy what's going on, but I'm glad that you and you and Jake and yours are or seem to be doing all right. We're doing okay. We're sitting here having a little late lunch and and just hanging out. Nice, nice. Doing- well, well, thanks for uh, attempting this again with me. Yeah, no problem. I guess oh, we had oh. that connection last time, and yeah, we were- but you know what? I I have a feeling. I have a good feeling about this time. Me too. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So, so welcome back for those of you that haven't or didn't know, uh, Monty and I tried to do this. Oh God, what about a month ago now? I think it's been about a month. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, schedules and all that have been crazy. And so I thank you for taking, taking a little bit of your time this afternoon to, uh, to sit down and, and redo this and rehash this conversation out from the last time. <laughs> no worries. My pleasure, Jim. Yeah. So, so tell me what's, what's been going on. What's up in Monty Byron world. Oh boy. Well, for the last three or four days, I've been getting all my equipment ready because I go back in the studio tomorrow. Nice. To hopefully finish my new record. But, I mean, I've got like, I've got a Leslie speaker, an old Marshall, some old Fenders, about 14 guitars and all work. I, just a lot of equipment that I've been working on and getting everything ready. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited, man. These next four days should be, uh, you know, be, I should be ready to mix this record when this week's over. Awesome. So is everything like ready to go? Are you just finishing or is this yeah. starting? Yeah, so we, we started tracking a couple of months ago, and uh, I don't like to rush a record. I like to get the tracks done, and then and then I take it over to my keyboard studio, and we work on his stuff, and then I take it over to my other guitar player, and we work on his stuff, and then we bring it all back into the big studio, which is what I'm doing tomorrow, and finish any background parts, all my, <clears throat> all my big guitar solos and all that stuff, and... Uh, this is re this record's a little different than any of my previous records for myself. Um, I'm using a symphony on this record. I'm using wow. string. I'm using uh, a choir. I'm 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 pulling all the stops on this one, Jim. That's awesome. And yeah, I mean it's really exciting because these are songs. You know, I've been a songwriter my whole life, right? I mean, I've written songs for just about everybody. But a lot of times I'll write a song and never, ever perform it. It'll never make a record. Uh, you know, it just gets caught in the shuffle, lost in the shuffle. So over the last 30 years, I've picked what I think are my 10 or 12 best songs that never made a record. And uh, yeah, it's coming out better than anything. This might be my favorite. I always say that, Jim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but I do. I, I if not my best record, it's certainly the most you know original, unique record I've ever made. That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm excited about it, man. Really. Cool. So so all of these songs that you've, if you had to put a sound on this album that, that's oh. coming out. You know, forget about the symphony, forget about the choir. If you had to put a label on the type of music you're you're putting out this time around, what would you say that is? Well, I'm a blue-eyed country singer, blue-eyed soul country singer, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And so this is a really it's a combination of all of my styles. There's some real Bakersfield country on it. Uh, matter of fact, one of them's called Looking for That Bakersfield Sound. And then I have one called Do I that is a full orchestra. I, I, you know, I don't know that I can say one sound on this record. It's, it's my sound. I mean, it sounds like me singing. That's awesome. It's definitely me. You're not going to confuse it with anybody else, but I don't know, Jake, what would you call this? Americana? Just straight Americana. Yeah. 
Yeah, so a little bit of everything. That's awesome. You know, it's it's you know, with with everything that's available in the music world and all the stuff I've been listening to, like it's hard to kind of keep up. Um and with 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 everything, you know, but I can't tell you, you know, and, and I think a lot maybe a lot of it's based on the conversations you and I and Jake and I have had over the last month or so. Like I've I haven't been this excited for a new release in a very long time. Oh, thanks, Jim. Thank you. Yeah, hell yeah. I mean, so let's go let's go back a little bit if you don't mind. We're we're gonna talk about that Bakersfield sound like we did the last time. Um so with that being said, how did how did you get into the whole Buck Owens thing? And again, we're gonna we're gonna go through things we already have, but nobody nobody else heard it. So (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna have the same conversation again. It's gonna be like Twilight Zone, but better this time. Well, I mean, I met Buck long before I ever worked with him or recorded with him or any of that, uh, you know, because I'm from Bakersfield and he's Buck Owens, my God. So, you know, we did the the celebrity golf tournament with my dad, which was a <laughs> one of the funniest things I ever did. But Buck, once I started having success in country music, man, he stepped right up to the plate. I mean, yeah, I'm sure. We always knew about each other, but, you know, I had made some rock records. And I mean, I'm one of the first videos on MTV back in the early 80s. And so, you know, it's not like I hadn't been in the music business. And then I became a record producer. But once I started Big House, Buck was so proud of us. We were the first act to do his club. We were the first sellout at his club. We were the first national broadcast at his club. And that was as Big House, correct? At big House, yeah. That was all Big House. And uh, I don't know, man. I just, I started calling him my godfather because he sort of took me under his wing. He, he was calling radio stations and writing them letters on our behalf. And, um, you know, I mean. I mean, I, I guess, I guess there couldn't have been a better person to, uh, to do that or come to the plate for you. Never, no, not not one single person on the planet, and I was never so proud to be associated with anybody as Buck Owens because I grew up on him. Man, first song I ever sang in my life was "Tiger by the Tail." Right. So you know, yeah, that's that's that was a big deal to me. So then again, Buck, uh, Big House had its run, and then we kind of got back together for a third album, and we actually got a top ten single out of that. That was nice, and. And but we weren't ever going to really do the touring thing again. And, you know, everybody went on to their own lives. And then after Buck passed, which was really devastating, I I got a call from Jim Shaw, the band leader for the Buckaroos. And 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 he asked me if I wanted to front the band. And I I, I was like, Jim, I'm, I'm not really a country singer. I'm more of a blues soul singer, you know. And I said, I know all those songs, but I don't sing them like Buck. Anyway, he said, man, you can come in and do it any way you want. Just just come down and see how it feels. I did that gig for 13 years. Yeah. You know. And, and that was 13 years every weekend, right? No, it started off almost every weekend. Then it cut down to every other weekend. And then I'm going to say the last five years, probably about one to two weekends a month but that was a friday saturday and it was always packed and it was always a great show 
And I, I, I got to tell you, man, those guys in the Buckaroos are the most professional. Like there was never an instant in 13 years where there was a problem. That's awesome. You know, everybody got along great. Everybody loved each other. I miss those guys. And yeah. the singer. Um, yeah, it was a great gig, man. It was the, the dream gig for me because I could just drive down the street, walk right. up on the stage, and hello, everybody. <laughs> right. That was great. Right. Well, I, 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 you know, we talked about it last time, and I'm probably going to say that a million times, and everybody's going to be like, yeah, we know. Um, you know, I, I can't. I can't fathom that whole situation with you and Buck, you know, because growing up, it's, you know, I heard that that country music, you know, my dad's side of the family loves that, you know, the, the greats and all that stuff. So as a kid, I heard it all the time, hated it at the time. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, I didn't hate it as a kid, but I rebelled against it by the time I was a teenager. Right. Yeah, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I'm like, I, where's Jimi Hendrix? Yeah. and uh, But it's funny because now both of us, as we're older, we've learned to appreciate not only country music, but the old stuff, too. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, we, we have that in common, Jim. You know, because w- without that, Monty, you know, you don't have what, what we have now. You know, you don't have, you know, to, to, to be in the – Buck Owens ballpark. We don't have you. We don't have Dwight. We don't have, right. Right. you know, George Dukas. We don't have, right. Right. You know, Garth to an extent, you know, we oh, don't a have big extent, people. huge Garth was heavily in man. Garth uh, proposed to Trisha Yearwood on Buck's stage in Bakersfield. Yeah. I mean, that was a big deal, man. That oh yeah. A, you know, and George Jones, when he was alive and Merle, all the greats all stopped in to play that club. Man, I remember one night we were doing a, uh, I don't know if you remember the name Billy Mize, but he's a Bakersfield country singer. Back in the 60s, Billy Mize and 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 uh, what's his name? Um, American Bandstand. Um, uh, anyway, they started the CMAs. Yeah. You know, or the ACMs. Academy of Country Music was started in Bakersfield because we felt left out by the Nashville people. So that's what the ACMs were all about. Anyway, Billy Mize wrote the greatest opening line to a country song. I grew up with this song, but uh, it's a song called Who'll Buy the Wine. The opening line is, not long ago you held our baby's bottle, but the one you're holding now is a different kind. And that's what I grew up on. Anyway, so one night we're, we're at the palace and, and it's Billy Mai's 80th birthday. And I mean, everybody's there. Merle, uh, this is after Buck passed, but like Ray Price, everybody's there because it's Billy Mai's. It's his 80th birthday. And so I go up there to present him this uh, nudie jacket that everybody had bought for him for his 80th. And and as I'm walking up on stage, I see Merle walking out the side door and he looked kind of pissed off, you know? So I do the thing. I hand the jacket to Billy and congratulate him. And I, when I was done, I run out to the side, the side door and I see Chuck Seaton, my other guitar player from Big House, standing there with, Buck, or with Merle. And I walked up and I said, Merle, what's going on, man? What's, you seem kind of upset. He goes, upset. He goes, I'm sitting in the front row 
And those two guys came up there with them whiplashes and started doing rawhide and about hit me in the face with that thing. And who do they think? <laughs> and I thought, man, you're still a crotchety old SOB. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, un, you know, it's so unbelievable to me to be able to talk to you and hear these stories firsthand from somebody that knew these people. Or or know these people in some aspects, you know, luckily we still have some of these people with us, but, yeah. you know, to hear yeah. the stories about Buck and Merle and, you know, we'll get to Eddie money, but, you know, <laughs> all these people that you've, that you've, you know, <laughs> made, you know, I mean, you, you know, not to be too modest about it, but you made Eddie money's career. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I- Eddie. I mean, I, I, I wrote I wrote his second biggest hit. Exactly. Let's you know, you don't you don't have to be modest on this show, Monty. <laughs> okay. But I mean, I Eddie was Eddie was a, like, you know, he was a rocket, man. When I first met Eddie. Oh, my God. I wanted to be in his band. I wanted I wanted to be Eddie. As a matter of fact, when I was with Eddie, they used to call me Eddie Monty. <laughs> <laughs> I was such a fan, but. Yeah, he saw something in me, and he always loved my songs. I think I wrote, I'm going to say 15 songs for Eddie, and somewhere in that ballpark. So by the time I started producing him, uh, I I didn't even think I was producing him. I was just writing and recording songs that we wrote. And the next thing I know, he takes me over to, to Sony, and we're sitting there with Randy Jackson, and playing him the songs that we wrote and Randy looks at me and goes, you know, how would you feel about producing Eddie? I said, what? <laughs> you know, this is from a major label and it's friggin' Randy Jackson. You right. know? And, and for those of you listening at home, that might be of a younger audience. Yes. That Randy Jackson. Yeah. That Randy Jackson from that, American Idol and, and, right. and, and probably every great artist that came off of Sony. Right. Yeah, pretty. Didn't he play bass on like every Michael Jackson record too, or something? Yeah, and and who's the other girl? Uh, uh, the, the, the 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 girl with the high voice. Uh, Cindy Lauper. No, I mean the high. The, the sister. She was married to the president of Sony. Oh, uh, right. oh god. Anyway, Randy worked with everybody. He was one of those. Who? He was the bass player for Journey. The last version of Journey was. Randy. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true. when I, that's when I met him. He actually wanted to join my band, Billy Satellite, back in the 80s. That's when I met him. Anyway, long story short is Randy asked me if I was interested in producing Eddie. And of course, I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. I, 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 sure. And so I produced the next two albums for Eddie. I did the the Right Here album. And actually, I co-produced that with Randy. And then... This is before the unplugged thing was happening. Like there was no unplugged on MTV yet or anything, but Eddie and I would go out to a little club with an acoustic and just sing a couple of songs. And it always went over really well. So I said to Eddie, I go, you know, why don't we try like an acoustic kind of band and see what happens? And everybody thought I was crazy. Everybody thought Eddie was crazy, but I thought, you know, it's working. So I brought, we brought in this percussionist. I brought in this keyboard player I knew from Alameda and Eddie brought in his other guitar player and who 
thought I was nuts when I told him I wanted to play acoustic guitar. I mean, Eddie Money's like a rock band, you know, <laughs> Led right. Zeppelin and Bad Company, and you know. Anyway, so we put this little so we started rehearsing this set together, and we're doing the hits. We're doing two tickets and don't come running back and baby hold on and but acoustically, and it's really working. Oh, I bet. So at one point, we're at this little rehearsal studio down in L.A. Mates. And Randy says, I'm bringing the Bill Graham people. I'm bringing the record company. I'm bringing the agent. I want everybody to see this. Okay, Randy. So we go down to the rehearsal room and it's, he's got three of the guys from Bill Graham. He's got his agent at the time who was booking ZZ Top and everybody else. And, and Randy from the record company. And we're all in this room and, you know, the thought, the record company, the thought of Eddie doing an acoustic thing was so foreign to their way of thinking that, I, and I was a little nervous about it. So we played the first tune and I don't remember what song we did, but we played it and we finished it and you could hear a pin drop in the room. I mean, it was not going over. <laughs> And I got really nervous and, and I look around the room and I'm thinking, well, this just isn't going to work. And then Randy Jackson did something that I will never forget till the day I die. He, this is when Randy was really big. He was about 400 pounds. And he walks up in front of the, everybody at the record company, the management. He sticks that big foot right on the stage and he goes, hey, play that reggae tune, uh, Running Back. So just play that one, Eddie. They're going to love this. And, you know, it's Randy Jackson. So they're all listening. So we go into the song Running Back. And I look over and the agent's kind of tapping his foot a little bit. And I look over and the manager guys are sort of, you know, looking at each other and talking. I'm thinking, well, they're kind of digging this. When we finished that tune, we got an applause from his management. <laughs> His agent from the record company. I mean, my God, I was freaking out. And so we took a little break. Eddie goes outside into the parking lot. And this is the other thing I'll never forget. I walk out there and he's standing there with his agent, his management and Randy. And they're all talking there, you know, and I walk up and Randy says, how do you feel about going on the road for a couple of weeks? Just doing the West Coast with this acoustic thing. Jim, we came back two years later. Damn. We didn't come off the road for two years and we sold out every show. We sold out Auburn Palace in Detroit. I mean, it became the thing. And while we were doing this, I'm not saying we're the reason, but while we were doing this, the unplugged thing started happening on MTV. And then you saw Eric Clapton and yeah. even the country. I remember Tracy... Uh, Lawrence doing that acoustic unplugged thing and it made his career. Yeah. So yeah, man, that was, uh, that was the thing I was most proud of the whole time I was with Eddie was that acoustic run that we did for a couple of years. God, I like that. That's something that, you know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I had no idea that that tour even happened. Yeah. Like, most didn't. No. Listening to you talk about it. It's like, damn, I wish I could have saw that. Well, you can, and I'll, I'll tell you what, if Jake can find a copy of the, un, it, the record was called Unplug It In. Did you got to hear it, Jake? 
<laughs> Thank God my son has my CDs. Uh, yeah, we need to find a copy of this and get it out to Jim or make a copy of it and send it to Jim. Is it on Amazon? On, online, yeah. Oh, it is online. Okay, well, I don't know. I don't know what's for sale anymore. Um, great record, man. Yeah, really it great. sounds it. So... Oh. So with with doing that now, you know, you talked about writing Eddie's second, uh, you know, biggest hit or, or whatever it was. What what song was that, Monty? I want to go back. I want to go back, go back, do it all over, but I can't go back. I know you remember that. Oh, yeah. I think everybody knows that song. Yeah, that was a pretty big hit. I. It's funny because that was on my first Billy Satellite record. Oh, was it? And then this kid on A&M who came and went did it. And then Greg Rowley from Santana and Journey did it. And then Eddie did it. And Eddie's version is so much better than any of our versions. I actually sing it like Eddie now. I don't even sing it the way that... Because Eddie was the king of phrasing. I, 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 he did that to me a lot. What is this, Jake? What's that? Iceberg. Oh, that's right. Oh, I forgot. And then last year, I get a phone call from my publisher, and he tells me <laughs> that Ace Freely from Kiss covered it. <laughs> so now I got Eddie, Ace Freely, Greg Rowley. That kid. yeah, it's been on a few records. My God, that that's was awesome. A, yeah, that was nice. Yeah, that that's you know, I can't. I can't, you know, I'm going to keep saying I can't imagine because I can't, um, you know, this sort of success and this sort of, you know, you know, stratospheric accomplishments that you, you've had, because really you have, you know, I, I think there'd be, you know, we'd be hard pressed to find artists like yourself that have done so much and contributed so much without, you know, please don't take this with any disrespect without without the fanfare without the right you know without the monty byram name and you know in neon all across the country but you know you were the catalyst for a lot of this so i if i'm if 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 there's one thing that probably sets me apart from most artists because i don't think i'm a better singer than most or a better guitar player than most or even a better writer but what i've managed to do in a small, strange way, is uh, sort of crossed the the bridge. Like when I grew up, Jim, my favorite artists were like the Birds and Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles, and there was that cross between California and Nashville. Yeah, there was always a marriage between the two that was never really defined, and and. Uh, there were a few people, Graham Parsons, who was a, really the godfather of marrying the California and the Nashville sound. He's the one that brought Emmy Lou Harris. It was actually his girlfriend um, out to Nashville for the first time. So that's what I've always tried to do. To me, there's a very fine line between country music and soul music. Yeah. Sometimes, it's, sometimes it's the same tune. They just sing it different. Right. 
you know, boys to men and what's that guy he had to hit back in the nineties. Uh, I can't even think of the guy's name now, but uh, it's that's happened. That's been happening since the fifties and sixties. Right. There was always a similarity between, well, the same songwriters. Right. Um, so that's what I've tried to achieve. And I think on my new record, I think I have achieved that because it runs the gambit in the, in the song department and in the grooves and the way that it sounds, you know, I'm marrying a little bit of the old Nashville and the old Bakersfield and some of the early Eagles and that that's the stuff that I love, man. Right. You know, and it's funny you say that because I've always, you know, I've thought about it a lot since our last conversation and, Really, you know, the Eagles tunes of early on and, even, you know, really, you could say throughout their whole career, uh, you know, even Linda Ronstadt, like they're country artists. Well, in today, like oh, if, yes. they, if you pick them up and put them in today, 2020, you would hear them on country radio all day, all night, all day. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and it's funny because, it, you know, it makes me laugh because, you know, my parents, you know, brought me up on that you know what is now classic rock you know skinner and right. um the allman brothers and the eagles and all all these bands that would nowadays <laughs> be on country radio right. well i don't know that they would make it on country radio but well, that's true I, you know only because of the corporate side of it not because of the music side right but yeah i, I totally agree with that jim i Maybe that's what brought me back into country. You know, I, I spent about two weeks with the Eagles. I was actually going to join the band when Don Henley and Glenn Fry couldn't get together. I got a call from Don Felder, the guy that wrote, you know, <laughs> oh, I don't know, this little song called Hotel California. Yeah. Anyway, he and he says, man, we still got these songs. We still got the band, but we can't get Fry and Henley to get together. Would you be interested in joining and uh, I spent about two weeks over in Malibu with Don and, 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 and Timothy Schmidt was still working on the record and Joe Walsh was still involved in it. But man, I knew in my heart that there was no way that I was going to be the guy in the Eagles that replaced Don Henley. Oh, so so you, you, you didn't know. you didn't want to be Vince Gill, pretty much. I, exactly. <laughs> well, I would love to be Vince Gill. I, well, uh, well, like, but sure. you know I what think, I mean. I, I think yes, most and, people in the industry would like to be Vince Gill. Well, I you know I think about bands like Foreigner or even Bad Company where they replace the singer. Yeah, and nobody ever took that singer serious, right. you know, and and that's what I so I passed on that. I actually had the same thing happen with Fleetwood Mac. I, I spent a couple of days with Mick Fleetwood and just working on songs. And next thing I know, he calls and says, uh, hey, can you come down to Ocean Way tonight and let's, let's work up the song in the studio? And I really had no idea what he wanted me to do other than record the song. And then Ray Kennedy calls me up and he says, hey, man, I heard Mick wants you to join the band. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm not joining Mick, you know, and again, there was no Stevie Nicks and there was no, uh, you know, the guitar player. Lindsay, so Lindsay Buckingham. Yeah, Lindsay Buckingham. So yeah. I, I had the exact same feeling and I passed on it. Now, the only reason I'm telling you this is because if I hadn't passed on the Eagles and if I hadn't passed on Fleetwood Mac, 
not that I would have got the gig. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't have. But that's what led me to Big House. Right. That's really when I started going, wait a minute, man. I got this thing here. And it's as good as any of those bands. You know. Yeah. So that's. I mean- yeah. I mean, really, you know, for, for people that, you know, might be my age and a little younger, maybe even a little older, like when we were growing up, when you, when Big House was a household name, you know, country music wasn't at the the, the stratospheric level uh, right. that it is today. Right. You know, you Big House, you know, from all accounts that I've seen, you guys were, you know, the 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 band of those couple of years yeah yeah we outsold everybody else we didn't chart higher than everybody else but we sold more records than alabama and every other group that was in country back then which i really find hard to believe but it's true Uh, um but again what separated us was that we wrote our own songs we produced our own records we played on our own records we didn't do what everybody in nashville did not trying to be rebels or anything we just did what everybody out here does you know like when you write a song in bakersfield you go into the studio and record it right you know and when you're done recording it you go play it for somebody you don't like merle and buck and billy and all the guys that i grew they all were their own songwriters so the idea of somebody else writing for me back then was totally foreign to me. Yeah. I Now I'm not that way. If somebody brings me a great song and it, you know, hits me right in the heart or brings a tear or whatever, I, I I'll do it. But that's only because I've matured to the point where I realize, yeah, I'm a good songwriter, but there are people out there that are better songwriters than me. And if I can get one of those songs, I'm going to get it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, speaking of Big House and, you know, this being a country music podcast and, and the whole nine yards, um, I had read somewhere about, or maybe you told me something about a, uh, were you guys nominated for a CMA or an ACM or something yeah. along those lines? Oh, yeah. In 1998. Is it eight, Jake? In 1998, we were nominated at the acms for i'm going to say new vocal group was it new vocal group jake yeah we were up against the kinley's and what was loretta's daughter's group what was that um i can't even remember now and uh it's here's here's the funny part so we're at universal you know the big amphitheater there for the awards and I got Clint Black sitting next to me. I got Garth right in front of me. I mean, these are all my guys, right? These are my favorite people on earth. Clint is the funniest SOB on the planet and sweetheart. And Garth is just a hoot. Yeah. Right. So we're sitting there and we're, you know, between whatever and we're talking and, and all my biggest artists are right around me. So this, I'm setting this up for how embarrassed I am. So as they name, you know the category okay best new artist and then they would name the artist and then they would play like a 30 second clip and then you know they'd clap and then they'd do the next artist so 
they said the Kinleys and they played the 30 second clip and there was a nice little clap and, you know, and then they said the, the, uh, I can't think of Loretta's daughters, but they were great too. Anyway, they did that. And then there was a little clap and then they said big house and they played the clip. And I, I look, I'm telling you the truth. My mother was there. She'll vouch for me. The place erupted. Like it went nuts. Like everybody, I turn around and everybody in the back is standing up and they are screaming. So the next thing the presenter says is, and the winner is. And as they say that, they're still standing up for Big House. So, <laughs> so I stand up thinking I friggin' won, man. And they go, and the winner is. And I stand right up to proud as a new daddy. And they go, the Kinleys. <laughs> <laughs> And I look at Clinton, I look at Garth and everybody, and what am I going to do? I look over at the Kinleys and I go, I shake the one girl's hand and go, congratulations. And I sat right back down. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. But I did realize that, that and, and I'm not putting the Kinleys down when I say this, they are wonderful. We've got to do some shows when they're awesome. But uh, I, that's when I realized that it's really political. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize how political it was until then, because anybody that presented that award award that night was embarrassed when they saw the difference in the reaction to the crowd. Right. And, uh, and you know, I mean, not that I'm like out there for awards. I really be honest with you. I, I don't really care, although it's nice when you get one. Oh, I'm sure. You know, it's a nice feeling. But uh, so so when the whole thing was over. I had just fired my other manager and you know how you do that red carpet treatment. You know, you go through the red carpet and then all the, blah, blah, blah. yeah, yeah. My new manager was so out of his mind and didn't know what he was doing that he walked us out the back. <laughs> and then we stood there for 20 minutes waiting for a limo, which never showed up. And then he says, well, we're just, and he points up this hill and he goes, well, we're staying up there at the hotel. Why don't we just walk up there? So, <laughs> Oh my God! I didn't get any treatment, and maybe that's why nobody knows who Big House is. I don't know. (laughs) Oh man, that's too funny. It was crazy, man. So, so now you know. Let's let's talk about you know your your relationship with Nashville and you know the politicized nature of of music. You know, do you find that that's probably the hardest part for artists, especially? now and maybe even then you know with with social media and all of the the noise and the bullshit that comes with everything yeah um i'll be honest with you jim i it when i left nashville in 2000 there was still a music row yeah there were still record companies and management companies and merchandise companies and agents and pretty much the entire music row that's all it was every building that you went by had something to do with music i was out there a couple of years back and not one building has anything to do with music now there's i think you got universal in the middle there and there might be one or two recording studios left right but i mean we're talking about a you know a thousand businesses all wrapped up into this one little area music row and they're all gone yeah so it's not the same business that I grew up in 
or even the same. So here's here's my point in this story. If you make it in country music right now, man, you got bigger cojones than anybody I ever worked with. Right. Because you've got to have, you know, you've got to have a strong, it just, it's harder to make it now than it ever was. You know, and, and doing, doing this podcast and talking to these artists, like I've, I've seen that kind of firsthand, you know, I've, you know, we've talked about it where, you know, I'm really trying to push some of the lesser known folks or the folks that have the bands and artists that have a following, but aren't being played on, you know, country radio because they don't fit that sound or that mode. And, you know, a lot of these guys and girls that I have, you know, stumbled across in these bands are, are a million times better than what I, what, what I would hear on the local radio station. Oh yeah. Well, that, you know, I could give you a conversation about why they pick what they pick for radio, but then that would piss off some friends of mine and I wouldn't do that. Yeah. And you know, I, uh, it also like, there are songs that are so great in country music that I don't ever want to put them in that category because somehow they made it through the, <laughs> the, the, the gambit, whatever it is to get on country radio. Right. Uh, George Strait comes to mind. Uh, Alan Jackson comes to mind. I mean, songs that are so great that I wonder how they got on country radio. Well, it was a different time. You know, it really was, you know. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, country music now is, you know, by and large, just, you know, and I, I hate to even say it because I know I get a lot of shit and a lot of pushback for it. But it, it is pop music with a twang. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's okay. You know, it's not all bad. It doesn't all Oh, suck. no, some of it's awesome. Yeah, some of it's really good. You know, I, I, my wife and I, you know, have a hard time not going to every, you know, big major stars concert that comes through the Boston area. Right. You know, because we love it. But, but back, you know, to that point, you know, I don't think if people like, you know, Alan Jackson and George Strait, and Garth, if they're starting off today, they're independent musicians that have a, you know, um, a following that isn't country radio. Right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to give you one great little story. And this is every word of this is true. And I, so back in the. I'm going to say early 90s, so 91, 92. I was working with this engineer named Vacek Aganians. And Vacek was famous for being the remixer for all the rap records. And I'm talking like Biggie Smalls to, I mean, everybody. If you had a, if you were a rap artist in the 90s, like Vacek discovered Body Count and Ice-T. That was his big claim to fame. Wow. But, but I don't have anything to do with any of that music. I wouldn't, I mean... Uh, what's the guy that walked up with, when Bo was there, Jake? And I didn't even know. Uh, 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 oh, come on. The big artist, the big rap guy. Uh, uh, Kanye? No, even just as big. I think he went to jail. It was Snoop Dogg and this guy. Come on, Jake. You've got to help me out with this. Yeah. Anyway, he's like the biggest artist in the world. And I don't, it, he could have, he could have, you know, punched me out. I wouldn't have known who he was. <laughs> my, so my point. So here's my point of the story. I, I'm Vacek because I'm 
kind of a rhythmic guy and a, you know, I play a lot of different instruments and whatever. He would call me around 11, 12 o'clock at night. And he'd say, Monty, I need you at the studio tonight. And, and okay, Vacek, what are we doing? Just come down. And, and so I would go down there after the session was over, like when all the brothers and sisters would leave and they'd let this little white boy come in and I would do a little, you know, a little drum beat or a little loop thing or maybe a little wah-wah or something and help Vacek fix these tracks up. And every once in a while, I'd say, Vacek, who's the artist? And, and it was never anybody I recognized. I don't know anybody. Right. So one night I'm playing on this song. I swear this is true, Jim. And I said, it was a really cool part. And I said, Vacek, who's the artist? And he goes, oh, this is Biggie. And I, I, I don't know who Biggie is. Okay, great. Thanks, man. So we get finished the track. And I don't know, a week or two later, the freaking guy gets murdered, right? And everybody's talking about Biggie Smalls getting murdered. And I said to Vacek, I go, isn't that that guy I just played on his record? And he goes, yes, but Monty, nobody knows. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> so here's the story. I'm at the supermarket. And I'm looking like, you know, Monty Barham. I got my hat and my boots and I'm checking out of the checkout stand. And I... And I see, you know, how they got the National Enquirers and the, all the star magazines and all this stuff there when you're checking out. And there's Biggie's picture. Biggie Smalls murdered in Baba Ba and don't, don't know who, the, whatever. So I'm looking at it. And this, this uh, sister that's checking me out, she's, uh, oh, did you hear about Biggie Smalls? And I looked at her and I said, yeah, I, I just played on one of his records. And she looks at me and she goes, nigga, please. <laughs> and I realized at that moment that ain't no one ever going to believe this. Ain't no, nobody's ever believed that this singer from Big House is on all these rap records because I was the guy they brought in in the middle of the night. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, that's, that's a cool story. So, so the end of the story is this. I'm sitting there with Vacek, middle of the night, it's 2, 3 in the morning. And these two gals that had sang on the record, they were just hanging out. And we got to talking and they said, oh, oh, you like country music? I said, yeah, you know, I'm making this country record. And, and they said, well, do you they said, do you did you ever meet Garth Brooks? And I said, no, I haven't met Garth, but I'm a huge fan. And 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 they looked at me and they go and then, now these are these are rap artists. OK. And they look at me and they go. Well, we just love us some Garth Brooks. As a matter of fact, he's our favorite artist. And I said, what are you talking about? You're on this freaking rap record. They said, honey, if you don't like Garth Brooks, we don't like you. <laughs> and, and, and so that's, and I did tell uh, a couple of people working with Garth that story because that's how big Garth was. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you even say that because, you know, growing up, like I, like I said earlier, you know, it was rock and roll in my house. You know, it was the Beatles. It was Zeppelin. It was the Stones. It was Aerosmith. It was all that. And then when, when Garth came out with that double live album, you know, that was, I remember my father buying it and I was shocked because that, that sort of music was never played in my house ever. Wow. And he bought that, that, um, you know, double live album, the first one he did. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget. My father goes, you know what? This is somebody I would love to see live. 
Wow. And and luckily luckily enough for me, I got to see Garth live. I was supposed to see Garth live again in a couple of weeks, but that's a whole nother sore subject I'm not getting into. Okay. Um, yeah, but, I know. So you did get to go see Garth. Was your dad still around when you yeah, did? Yeah, yeah, my dad's still around. He's um, anxiously awaiting this episode with you, that's ah. for sure. I know that for a fact. So... <laughs> I love it. I love um, it. You know, because because I, you know, I I have no shame in the game. You know, I tell everybody that's close to me who I'm talking to and what they're all about. And right, right. you know, I've I've had the pleasure of already talking to some pretty, you know, crazy, you know, insane people that have stories and a career that I couldn't can't even imagine that you know somebody like you would talk to me about all of this for this show. So I can't thank you enough for that. And um, I probably would have said the same thing at your age, Jim, because, you know, I'm like anybody else. I just been doing this a really long time and I'm pretty good at it, but you know, I've been doing this since I was like 10. Right. You know, and you know, it, you know, to, to, to your point and to the point of this whole episode so far is that, you know, I remember about a month ago, when you reached out to me and and I'll, I'll tell you, you reached out to me and, you know, I didn't look for this. This wasn't even on my radar. And, you know, you, you sent me the little blurb about yourself and I called my wife right away. And I was like, I think somebody's fucking with me, <laughs> you know, cause then I, you know, I hurried up, I searched you real quick online and I'm like, all these stories are lining up. I go, this can't be real. <laughs> you know, this, this can't be a thing. And uh, my wife, my wife says to me, she goes, well, you got to like pursue it and see if this is a real thing. And I was like, all right. I'm like, so I did. And I, I can't, you know, I'm, I, I would at this point, Monty, I would call you a friend and I thank you for that. Oh, I feel the same way, Jim. And I was actually going to tell you, there's another guy you should interview um, that is a really good friend of mine who has been doing podcasts lately, this guy named Ray McDonald. Ray Mc... Yeah. Mac Ray or Mick? Ray Mc... Uh, I think it's Mac. M- Mac. Is it McDonald? M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. Anyway, Ray was Merle Haggard's best friend for his whole life. Wow. And then he became Merle Haggard's assistant back in the 70s. His bus driver... I mean, he Merle didn't go anywhere without this guy. And so he just wrote a book called Merle Haggard was my friend or was a friend of mine. And it's a great book. I'm telling everybody about it. But uh, he's been doing podcasts and this guy has got some stories. Well, I'm going to have to if if you can reach out to him, if you know, I will. Hold up a second. Jake, can you reach out and hook Ray and Jim up? Ray will do it, man. I mean, yeah. he's been doing the podcast since the book came out. So, man, yeah, I, w- I would, it. I would literally probably fall down and die. Oh, I'm so this guy has not. I, when I say the best stories, <laughs> I mean like, I'll just give you one example, and I'm not even going to tell you the name. But you know, like everywhere that Merle played, somebody famous would want to meet him, right? Yes. I mean, obviously, it's Merle. Right, right. So they're playing New York and like. Robert De Niro wants to meet him, you know, so Ray says, all right, Robert. And he brings him on the bus. <clears throat> he says, Robert walks to the back of the bus where Merle's sitting. It's just Robert and Merle. They don't say a word. 
he sits down, he looks at Merle, Merle looks at Robert, and they just started busting up. <laughs> there wasn't a word said. <laughs> finally, you know, like they start, you know, they, they, they're calming down. And Ray said, what's so damn funny? And neither one of them said anything. They just pointed each other and started laughing again. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, I, you know, I mean, oh, to be God. to be, you know, of that level and that magnitude of, you know, fame, you know, like really, yeah. you know, even if yeah. you don't like country music, you know who Merle Haggard is. God, if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Right. You know, yeah. but but to be in, like to be Merle Haggard or Robert De Niro and sitting across from the other person. And, right. That's like, you know, the universe just explodes in that in that one moment. I had a buddy that was my roommate when I first started Big House, a guy named Tony Wright. And Tony Wright was a real eccentric and, you know, was a writer, publisher, all of that. But he took five years of his life and traveled the world. And when I say traveled the world, he walked it. Like he went to the jungles of Borneo, the jungles of Thailand, South America, China, any place that would let him in. He just wanted to travel the world. And he told me this story. I told Buck this story. He said he was in the jungles of Thailand. And wherever he would go, he would try to learn enough language so that he could find out where the local bar was. And then he'd go have a drink and, you know, meet the locals or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, he's like in the deep jungle. And he's living on this river. And he walks into this little bar. And he said there was a jukebox. And he walks up to the bartender. And the jukebox look the, the bartender looks at him and points to the jukebox and he goes, Buck Owens, Merle Haggard. And he looked, walked over to that jukebox. He said, That's all they had. Wow. In the jungles of Thailand, the only thing they had on the jukebox was Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. Hello. Wow. That's, That's... when you know that you friggin' made it. Oh, hell yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. I told Buck that story and he didn't believe me, I don't think. <laughs> but I told him, I swear, my, I said, my buddy Tony does not lie about things like that, Buck. You yes. know, it's a big deal, man. Um, so I, I have a few th- few more things before I, I let you go, because I know I, you know, I try to keep 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 it at an hour, but I, right. you know, I, I would talk to you all night if I could. <laughs> um, but that, I guess that gives us an excuse to talk again. Okay. Um. So a couple of things when you're on stage, right? Do you mm-hmm. have, do you have a, do you have like a get up or is it just whatever you decide to put on that, that morning when you wake up and that's what you go on stage on? Well, that's been uh, a revolving door for a long time. Back in the eighties, I always wore the same thing. I looked like every other rock star in the eighties. I had hair down to my ass. <laughs> I wore a Levi jacket tight Levi's and a t-shirt a grandpa t-shirt and, and, and snakeskin boots. That's what I wore every day for probably 15 years on stage. What, what were those boots, Monty? What kind? Oh, they were probably, well, I had a bunch of the same looking boots, but I had every brand, Tony Lamas to, you know, uh, Acme's I had everything. Yeah. But I, I, here's the real drag. I can't even wear boots anymore. I'm my diabetic feet won't let me. And I really, oh. I have a great boot collection. I'm but, sure. But so then Big House, when we got signed, man, I had I had 
been with other record companies and I had had them buy me clothes before, but I never experienced nothing like this. Uh, they take me down to Melrose in Hollywood and Jim, I swear, now this is in like 1997. Okay. And they spent a friggin' hundred grand on me in one day. Wow. And, 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 and here's the real kicker. I didn't think I was going to keep any of these clothes. I figured, well, they're just picking this stuff out for the videos and the photo shoot. And then we're going to give it all back. Oh no. That was my stage clothes for the next two years on the road. Damn. And, I mean, I'd sit in a room and they'd bring me in a little cappuccino and, and then these, these little girls or gals would walk in with the clothes and they'd chin it. And then I'd say, well, let me try that one on. And man, it was surreal, bro. I, I, I got to tell you. And I've never experienced anything like that since. My wife now is the gal that dresses me. And she she got better taste than anybody, and she'll go out to all these thrift stores and all these fancy places in L.A. and pick me the coolest stuff. I, I look better now than I did when I was thirty. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Now, yeah. so speaking of you know going through things and and that time you know, did you realize what was happening? when it was happening, you know, with, with all the stuff with Buck when he was alive and with Eddie and Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles and everything we've talked about, did you know what the hell was actually happening, happening as it was happening? Yes and no. Uh, I mean, obviously it's the Eagles, so I know it's a big deal, but at that point in my career, I, I, I think I had learned more about what I didn't want to do than what I did want to do. Right. And so I avoided certain traps and pitfalls. And uh, so I knew what was going on, but I was very, very uh, careful. Yeah. Way. Um, and the other thing is when like big house, we averaged about 230 to 250 dates a year for two years and that's a different town every day yeah you would literally like you pack up you might get a couple hours and then you're off to the next town so there was no we were so busy that you couldn't enjoy any of it right you know you just went from radio station to sound check to another station and then back for the dinner and then gig and then autographs and then maybe get four hours sleep while you're driving to the next town that was my life for a couple of years wow and uh, when I think back on it, the memories that the, the things that that I remember the most are probably the shows, you know, some amazing shows. George Strait would sit in the front row every time we played, man. That was a little nerve wracking. I, I can imagine, you know, but he was such a sweetheart, man. He was such a nice guy. I'm telling you right now in any form of music, in any genre of music, George Strait is the nicest guy in all the music and, and the most supportive. And, and look at him, man. He's had the same band, the same sound guys for 40 years. Right. People don't quit when you work with George because no. he's not an asshole. Right, right. You know, that, that goes a long ways to me. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so those are the things that I remember as far as Eddie, uh, I, yeah, I knew what was going on. I yeah. definitely knew what was going on with that because 
I was doing something new. Uh, you know, I'll, uh, and I'll give you a real quick one on this. We played Auburn Palace in Detroit, sold it out, 16,000 seats, an acoustic act. And Bob Seger showed up. And, and Eddie's favorite singer is Bob Seger. So I never seen Eddie act that way before. I never seen him sing better than that night. I've never seen him act like that. It was, it was like Christmas morning for him. And, and Bob stayed for the whole show. Him and his wife sat on the side of the stage, rocking out to Eddie and the boys. And then after the show, we all went into the dressing room and we watched the Detroit Tigers win the World Series. Wow. Together. That's... You know, so that was a memorable night. That was one of those... Uh, everything about that night was magical and yeah i mean you know i had some great some great memories like that but the truth is man you work so hard on the road people think that it's a party or it's fun or whatever man there's no there's no time for partying right there's no time to have fun i mean you got to make fun with what you're doing because if you don't enjoy that the road will kill you so and I'm not like some, you know, like I know everything, but I've been on the road long enough to know that. Yeah. Wow. Definitely. That, definitely. That's incredible. So, so with all of this and all, all of the, you know, parties and all the fun and well, the, with the fun, right. In hindsight, um, what, what sort of, what was your beverage of choice? Did you have a whiskey? Did you have a, a cocktail? Did you have a, a beer you went to or was it whatever was thrown at you? Uh, I really like mezcal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not a big tequila guy, but I love, I love the stuff with the worm in the bottle. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's but, real tequila or so they say anyway. Yeah. You know, I do like the really expensive tequilas that you go down and buy South of the border. Yeah. Um, I was never really a beer guy. I I was a wino. I love my wine. Nice. I don't drink anymore. I'm I'm diabetic. I haven't drank in when did I quit last time, Jay? About seven, eight years ago. Yeah, it's been a while. Wow. Good for I you. Did, I really miss drinking. <laughs> <laughs> but it is what it is. Hey man, I you know so I was going to tell you this one story. It's probably too long, but I've, I, I've never told this story. Monty, it doesn't, it could be three hour story. I well, want to hear it. Well, this is, so you remember the movie almost famous? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. That's one of my, one of my all time favorites. Mine too. Mine too. So I'm watching that movie and you remember the scene where he jumps off the roof and says, I'm a bronze God. Yeah. And he jumps into the pool. That whole, uh, part of the movie where he's at the college frat party and then they dose him and, and you know, whatever. And then the next morning he's all freaked out and he's coming down off the acid. Yeah. You know, his road manager picks him up. That exact same thing happened to Eddie and I only he didn't jump off the roof and call himself a bronze God, but everything else in that move, I don't, I wondered while I was watching it, did, Eddie tell somebody this or did it was so weird because Eddie was never a big partier like well I take that back in the early days he was crazy but by the time I worked with him I had made a deal with him 
Eddie, you got to quit drinking. You got to quit the drugs, bro, because you're not even going to be alive in another year or two. And I didn't care if he smoked a little pot or something like that, but you know, he was going to be dead and, and he had to sober up. So when the gigs were over, we'd go back to the hotel, we'd get on the bus, you know, maybe have a nice dinner. I never really saw Eddie drink, but this one night the gig's over and he says, Monty, we're going to this party tonight. I said, what do you mean? We never go to parties. He says, we're going to this party. It's my, my cousin's kid. He's graduating. We're going to go to a frat house. Okay, Eddie. uh, All right. You know, so we, our road manager or some runner takes us over to this frat party. We're somewhere on the East coast. What actually close to you. We're in the Northeast. And so next thing I know it's Eddie and I in this like three, four streets with your typical frat house, you know, and, and we're down in the kitchen and some guys, you know, are offering us a drink. Somebody's lighting a joint, you know, everybody's just doing what they do at frat parties. And Eddie is holding court and he's pretty funny. And his little nephew or his nephew's cousin, I don't know whoever it was we were there to see is, is just loving it. So at some point I leave the room and I figure Eddie's fine. He's holding court in there and everything's great. When I come back in, there's, I can't find Eddie. And I asked a couple of people, where's Eddie? Where's Eddie? And Nobody seemed to know where Eddie was. Well, it turned out that when we walked in there, somebody dosed his drink. Oh. They didn't dose mine, thank God. But they dosed Eddie, and he started tripping. So once I found that out, I'm like, well, I got to find Eddie. This is wrong. So this is what I walked into. I, I found him on the fourth floor in the bathroom. And it was one of those old bathrooms with the little tiny tiles. And I mean, I can see it like it was yesterday. And he was huddled up in the corner next to the tub, literally like huddled up and kind of freaking out a little bit. And I didn't know what to do. So I, I sat next to him and I hugged him. And I said, Eddie, it's going to be all right, man. It's going to be all right, brother. And I walked him downstairs after he kind of got it together. And it was like that movie, man. All the kids, they all came. Oh, Eddie, man, we love you. And it's going to be all right. It was like that movie. (laughs) And then Neil Schaefer, our road manager, shows up, picks us up, and takes us back to the hotel. That's awesome. And I I never told that story. Maybe maybe you... was afraid to tell it when he was alive but uh you know it's a true story man and the thing i loved about it and the thing i loved about eddie with that was was that even when he was in his scariest moment there were always people around him that loved him and 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 i knew that he was going to be okay that night and you know even though he was freaking out and i never saw eddie like that ever since before after that yeah. But, uh, yeah. I just, that's weird. That's a great story. That that's a, that's a wow story. Yeah. True story. Uh, too. So I'm, I'm going to actually, I'm going to ask you one last, you know, probably hard hitting, you know, hit you in the feels kind of story uh, question. So if you don't want to answer, that's totally fine. But I've always had a curiosity with, with this question I'm going to ask you. Okay. 
being in the world you're in and having these, you know, larger than life, these famous friends and these famous people you're around. And, you know, now we've, we've lost Eddie, we've lost Buck, we've lost a lot of people. For somebody that was so close to Eddie and Buck, do you get to do like, you know, quote unquote, normal people would get to do and have your respects and do all the things? Or do you have, or do you mourn the loss of those lives in your own private way? Do you get to go to a wake, a funeral, that whole kind of thing? Or is it just? Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. That's the hardest part, I think. Because when Eddie died, I'm not going to go into, I'm not going to like disparage anybody, but I'll just leave it at this. Nobody liked his wife. Nobody. Nobody wanted to work with Eddie in the end because of his wife. And so I didn't go to the funeral. Um, That was really hard. That was really difficult. So that's funny you say that because Stanley Sherborne, my sound man, and I and Donnie Cromwell and a few other friends of mine, we're, we're going to go to his grave here on his birthday and do our own little respect thing. Because I, I do think about Eddie every day. I do. There's not a day goes by. He was like, a. I mean, he was as close as any brother I'll ever have. And uh, yeah, so I'll do it in my own private way. That's good. That's, you know, I've always found that, you know, kind of fascinating because you you hear, you know, you hear, you know, being a quote unquote normal everyday Joe or whatever, you know, when celebrities die, you know, we get, we get sad, (laughs) you know, so I can only imagine what it's like for, you know, the people that actually know these people and who they actually are. And, and, and that's the other thing is that it's, it's sort of a double death for some of us because we feel all the things that everybody else does too. Like, you know, when you hear the song and it makes you cry or you, you know, you think about the first time you saw him in concert or all of those things. I still have those feelings too. Yeah. You know, but then there's the other, which is, you know, this guy that was really good to me and helped me in my life and my career and love my family and my kids. And, you know, yeah, that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, um, and real quick before we go, speaking of one our one our um, our favorites and our our um, our heroes, I guess you you know, lack of a better term or the right term, can you just tell us real quick because you told it to me last time the story about the day Buck died and Crystal oh. Palace and everything that happened there? Yeah, that was a strange thing because the Crystal Palace. The day that, but well, I'll, I'll set it up. Buck wasn't going to show up that night. He wasn't feeling good. But some friends had driven down from Oregon to see him and called him. And so he got out of bed and he drove down to the palace and he sang for about 30 minutes. And he wasn't feeling great, but he, you know, did what he said he was going to do. And then he had a chicken fried steak, a glass of milk over ice his favorite meal and he went to bed and he died in his sleep, which, you know, when I think back on that, he, he, all the things that you would want to do in life, he got to do the last day of his life. Yeah. I I left one thing out there, which was his girlfriend was with him, but I ain't going to tell that part. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so 
he died that night and the power went out at the palace, which is just, it never does. I mean, you know, big it's right next to the freeway anyway and when the power went out the buck owens logo which is that red white and blue guitar sign, stayed on so it was the only light on in the whole parking lot was buck's guitar i i get goosebumps when i say it even and uh yeah that that was uh, too too weird yeah you know, it's funny because like I, I've listened back to the the original episode we tried we tried to do, and maybe one day I'll put it out just just because there's a lot of stories on that one that weren't here, which was which is great, which is fine. Um, and I I listened to that part of it, and it like I, I wanted to hear it again, you know, for everybody else because it's such a cool story. It's really and and you know, Buck, I don't know anybody that put bakersfield on the mac map more than buck not even merle uh you know because everybody yeah. thought merle was from muskogee oklahoma right you know i'm proud to be, but buck man you knew where buck was from there's no doubt and a lot of the or i think i told you this a lot of the artists that i work with down in texas they all want to come here yeah it's the mecca for country music man yeah i mean it really is yeah it's crazy yeah i gotta say one last thing though jim before we end this because i meant to tell you this last time and jake and i tried to listen to a little bit of the podcast and you know the one thing i noticed about you is and and don't let it go to your head but, <laughs> but it's true you ask really interesting questions you don't ask the same old tired shit that everybody you know who's your favorite singer who where were you born when would you everybody asks those questions not that there's anything wrong with them either but man you you, you got some ringers man you, oh. you can tell that you're into this and that you're not just going through the motions and for people like me that's awesome man well i i you know i'm I'm like almost at a loss for words, what you hear and you say that, because that means so much to me because I would spend, that's been my point with this whole podcast thing I've been doing. You know, I, the email I send out to artists, you know, I say, I say it, I was, this isn't your typical, I don't want this to be your typical, what's your name? Where were you? I, I hate that shit. Hate it. Hate, hate it. it. You know, I want to know the person behind the music. I want to know the, you know, you're a person first and those experiences are going to explain the music. Right. And that's, that's the shit I want to know. Right on, man. That's so true. That's so true. So I, I, I thank you very much for saying that. That make that means the absolute world to me. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you, Jim. I, I, I meant it too. Um, and, and, this is not the last time we're going to do this. So we'll, uh, next time we make a record or we're out your way or whatever, we'll do it again. Yeah, absolutely. I would love that. And what Jake? Once it releases. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. When the record comes out too, I want to do it again. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, that'll yeah. be after January. I wanted to get it done before Christmas, but that ain't going to happen. Uh, whenever, you know what, whenever it's done, we can, if you want to sit down and do a whole review of the album and talk about the whole process, I am, or, even if you just want to have an episode of another, you know, shooting the shit, I don't care. Whatever you want, I am here. Right on, Jim. 
Well, we'll we'll talk soon, and and we will definitely do that. And uh, thanks again, brother. No, thank you, Monty, Jake. Thanks, thanks for helping everybody, helping all of us get all this together. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Jake. Say goodbye. See you, Jim. Bye, Jake. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, Jake. I mean, Jim. We'll see you, buddy. Bye. Bye. Wow. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Monty Byram. Um, you can probably hear in my voice that it's a little off. I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, had a crazy day yesterday where I was yelling and screaming and then talking to Monty tonight has been, you know, absolutely fantastic. I really hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Monty. Um, again, thank you, Monty. Thank you, Jake Byram for getting us all together and making sure this happened again. I'm so happy to have talked to you all again. Um, Good luck in the studio, Monty. We can't wait for the rest of the album to come out and to to hear it all. Um, just some housekeeping things. Please follow us on social media, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, all at Boots and Whiskey Podcast, on Twitter, at Boots Whiskey. Um, I do have an intro coming, hopefully, in the next week or so that will be on top of these episodes. I can't wait for that. My good friend, Mr. Jeremy Leahy, who has his own radio show, his own political podcast, is helping me out with that. So thank you so much, Mr. Leahy. Um, and a couple of other things. I'm going to be pushing some things and partnering up with some people. Um, you can find these folks on social media. American Grit and Grace, they're, they make homemade stuff. Um, Amanda is absolutely fantastic. She makes some really good stuff. Go check her out on social media, American Grit and Grace. Um, we also have a partnership coming out with Rowdy Roads. Go to their website, find out their stuff. They have some apparel that you, you don't want to miss. They have koozies. They have all kinds of stuff. Some great, great stuff there. And then um, another another one that we've we've been talking to is Dirt Road Scholar Supply Company, another apparel shop out of Canada. Absolutely fantastic guys and girls over there. So we're looking forward to all of those partnerships and everything else that's coming. I can't thank you all enough for listening and being a part of this show. Without you, there is no Boots and Whiskey podcast. So thank you so much. And as always, keep the boots on the ground and the whiskey in the glass. Till next time. Good night, everyone.